My guest today is Naomi Klein, whose new book, Doppelganger, is somehow both the most personal and the most all-encompassing of her works to date. Beginning with the highly destabilizing but very intimate experience of repeatedly being mistaken for someone else, someone whose beliefs are, in most respects, fundamentally different to Klein's, it expands into a penetrating analysis of what she terms the mirror world, that place populated with right-wing agitators, conspiracy theorists, anti-vaxxers, and wellness influencers, which, if you squint just the right amount, can end up looking not too dissimilar to your everyday reality. Doppelganger is, therefore, a very timely book, but it's also a book anchored in a historical and structural analysis that enables readers to understand our current dizziness-inducing world in the context of decades, even centuries, of denial about the human misery produced and sustained in the construction of our world. Doppelganger is terrifying, vertiginous, compelling, and inspiring in almost equal measure. And I'm so excited that Naomi Klein is with me to discuss it today. Naomi, welcome to the Shakespeare and Company podcast. Thank you so much, Adam. I'm very, very pleased to be with you. And thank you for that introduction. It's my pleasure. Thank you for the book. Um, having been a, a reader and admirer of your work um, ever since being turned onto it, I think by Radiohead in, um, in probably around the year 2000, I was, of course, so excited to see the announcement of Doppelganger. And then when I read what it was about, I was kind of, I was trying to figure out how that fit into what I sort of saw as the the thread that has run through your work. And then as I read the book and as I made my way through it, suddenly it became very, very clear how it fit into that thread and how it sort of in some way encompassed everything you had written up to that stage. Was that a similar sensation that you had when living and then researching and writing the book that would become Doppelganger? So the book, um, it's a book I found while writing it. Uh, Mm -hmm. So I didn't know exactly what it was going to encompass when I began the process. And I wrote it very, very differently from all my other books. Mm -hmm. Um, Back to No Logo, I always had a book contract. Uh, Mm -hmm. I always had a very detailed um, plan and deadline and Uh uh, various people waiting for me to finish. With this book, it grew out of a desire, frankly, to write differently, to write more creatively. Mm -hmm. Um, I was finding myself a little bit speechless during the pandemic and Mm -hmm. sort of losing faith in a certain kind of linear thesis-based uh, fact, argument, or, uh, uh, um, way of of explaining the world that I've done for the nine, well, the eight previous books, um, and and also feeling like I had an opportunity because I wasn't traveling in the way that I used to. Mm-hmm. We were all grounded. Um, th- that I could play a little bit with form. And so I actually worked with a writing teacher. um, Mm -hmm. I kind of went back to school because I I never studied creative writing. I just started doing uh, the work. I just started, you know, uh, I was, I studied literature uh, as a subject, but I never took a writing course. Right. Um, And, and so I started working with a writing coach, uh, these little exercises. It was fun. Um, And, out of that, I came up with this idea for an essay about grappling with my doppelganger mm. that I thought I might maybe pitch to the New Yorker. Uh, um, but from the beginning, it was a way of playing with form, of, right. use, uh, of using the, the, the technique, you know, really the, the literary tool of the double 
to look at personal branding, to look at parenting, um, to look at losing oneself during a shock. So uh-huh. it, it it always was going to grapple with the material in my first book, in No Logo. Mm-hmm. That was always the idea of mm-hmm. finding my way back to personal branding, which was a really important theme in that book, um, but to do it in a more personal way, uh, yeah. not not as a sort of you know, a marketing text, but uh-huh. as a losing myself text. <laughs> um, but, but yeah, what made it different is I didn't tell anyone about it besides right. my, my writing teacher, Harriet. <laughs> I didn't tell my editor. I didn't, I didn't have an agent. I had, I had, I had, uh, you know, parted ways with my agent. So nobody was waiting for this book until I had written about 10 chapters. Mm. And then I, I, I showed it to an agent and she showed it to some editors. So it was really like being eight months pregnant before telling mm-hmm. anyone, which was very freeing for me because I it meant that I was writing it for myself. I could always back out if it wasn't working. Um, and yeah, it just kept expanding. And then it sort of was about all these other themes, but I didn't know it at the start. Yeah, yeah. It's fascinating to hear that because, and I don't want to get ahead of ourselves because we'll come on to talk about the the different themes of the book. But the fact that you, it seems to me almost that you instinctively knew that you needed to equip yourself with different tools that you that you'd learned to have before to deal with this subject which in many ways is very fluid and does deal with kind of fictions and a kind of i don't know a slightly less firm foundations than uh, than your other subjects and it's, it's curious because it seems that like even though you didn't you say you didn't know necessarily what the book was going to be about it felt that there's something in you was like, okay, I need to equip myself uh, with these new skills. Yeah, because I mean, it was always going to be about the destabilization of the moment. It was always going to mm. be a, a book about vertigo, about collective vertigo and personal vertigo when the world we thought we knew changes, when we're not sure what is real and who is real, when we're mm. interacting with one another through these avatars, um, when there's so much inf- disinformation and and misinformation. And so, you know, I've written about vertigo, vertig- vertiginous moments in the past. I mean, really, that's what the shock doctrine's about, these mm-hmm. these, these punctuating cataclysmic, uh, um, uh, you know, interruptions of reality, right? Mm-hmm. Whether it's 9-11, whether it's the 2007 financial crisis, sorry, 2008 financial crisis, or, um, you know, even a huge uh, natural disaster like the Asian tsunami. Like, these are these are moments when the world we th- th- we thought we knew is upended, whether physically or economically or geopolitically. But COVID was different because we were all inside the shock, including mm-hmm. me, right? Mm-hmm. So, you know, as a reporter, I had kind of gone into these disasters with my notebook going like, okay, how is this affecting people and who is ah. trying to take advantage of it? But I was very acutely aware that this shock was different because I was experiencing all the same symptoms that I had written about in other people. And so I, yeah, I, I realized I needed these different literary tools to, to like write. It's like I, the way I would think about it is like writing about the hurricane from inside its eye, mm-hmm. yeah. right? As opposed yeah, yeah. to coming from the outside and describing it. Mm-hmm. And so I needed to establish myself as a destabilized narrator Mm-hmm. who gradually over the course of the book sort of finds their footing. Um, so I lean into that a little bit. Like I really was destabilized by having a doppelganger, by suddenly not being able to do the things that, 
in the past have helped me understand who I am because mm-hmm. we are social beings. And when we're not able to do those things, we, we can, we can, um, we can, you know, I, I think, I think a lot of the, the kinds of derangements that we saw in the COVID era were just social beings being too isolated mm-hmm. and, and, tr- and trying to get some simulation of those relationships that we make ourselves with through these platforms that don't have our best interests mm-hmm. at heart. Um, but, but yeah, I, so, so I was destabilized, but maybe not quite as destabilized as I appear to be in the opening of the book. <laughs> I was, I was inspired by, uh, you know, Jeff Dyer's, um, book out of sheer rage, right, that opening. Yes. So I was sort of, that was partly what I was challenging of just like a really, really destabilized narrator. <laughs> uh-huh. <laughs> well, let's talk about that, that experience of the doppelganger, because we've, we've mentioned it a few times, but we haven't given any details yet to, to listeners who may not have read the book yet. So of course, in one sense, the doppelganger, it's a, a historical, almost a kind of archetypal form. And yet the way in which you experienced it was it was mediated at least at first through this very contemporary, very modern technological form of sort of the internet and, and social networks. So would you be able to just give us a little bit of an, an introduction into how you first encountered your doppelganger and how she became a part of your life? Sure. So there, there are these different um, ways of understanding the doppelganger that have changed throughout time and Doppelgangers are very in vogue right now. Um, there's lots of like doppelganger finder websites and facial recognition software and TikTok. Like there's so there's all these videos of people sort of finding their doppelgangers now just because we're swimming in faces. But originally they had this ominous uh, um, connotation that that if you th- this idea that everybody has a a identical self walking around the world and if and if you were to ever bump into your doppelganger you would instantly know and it would be a perhaps a harbinger of death mm-hmm. it was not a good thing to see one's one's doppelganger uh, more recently it's used more loosely and often it's other people reporting to you i saw your doppelganger mm-hmm. or did were like or, or acting as if they saw you and then you realize that they're talking about somebody else. Um, there's a, there's a, a Montreal based f- a photographer who's gotten a lot of attention named Francois Prunel, who has photographed hundreds of pairs of mm. lookalikes. And the, 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 the series is called, I am not a lookalike. It's been featured in the guardian and the New York times. So people may have seen it. It's also became, it's also become the basis of some scientific research mm-hmm. to try to understand if there are some shared genes when people have these right. sort of uncanny similarities. Um, but Brunel's um, criteria for, for who gets to be included in the exhibition is um, they have to have been confused with one another in the real world. So these are, mm. so these are people who've had this experience where somebody's like, Oh, you look just like this person or actually believes they are that person. So that's the way I experienced having a doppelganger. I'm not one of those people who like bumped into someone and was like, Oh my God, you look just like me. The writer, Naomi Wolf, who's mm. wrote you know, the book, the beauty myth that came out when I was in university and is a you know Jewish nonfiction writer of sort of big thesis based books like I am. Um, you know, when I would look at her, I didn't think, oh, that's me, that this person looks uncannily like me. I, I don't think we look all that much alike, actually. <laughs> um, she has much better hair than me. She has <laughs> blue eyes. I have brown eyes. Um, uh, 
But in the real world, I would have this experience occasionally where somebody would be very insistent that we had been at a party together and that we knew each other. And, and, and I would be confused by it. And then afterwards, I would think, wait a minute, maybe they're thinking of me. <laughs> um, I also had an experience in a, in a public restroom where, in a public bathroom where I was in a stall and I heard two people talk, like trashing me, like talking about an article I had written that they really disagreed with. And then I realized they were talking about an article that Naomi Wolf had written. I came out and I said, I think you're talking about Naomi Wolf. <laughs> but where it happens most, as you say, Adam, is online. Uh, that's where I would get thousands of what I call identity confusion events, where, where uh, especially during COVID, where she became very, very active in the COVID misinformation and disinformation sphere, um, you know, often like 80% of what I would see in my own social media feeds with people talking about her and something mm -hmm. she had said, or laughing about the fact that I would inevitably be, uh, be uh, like, like they would be posts like, you know, thoughts and prayers to Naomi Klein, or <laughs> the real victim here is Naomi Klein, because people knew that, uh, that I would be, I would, people would believe that I was the one who said, for instance, children had lost the ability to smile mm -hmm. because they were wearing masks uh -huh. and, and things like that, or that you could, you could, um, uh, have your menstrual cycle interrupted because you were near somebody else who had been vaccinated. Not that mm -hmm. you had been vaccinated yourself, but that their vaccine would shed onto you mm -hmm. and perhaps impact your fertility, things like that. I should probably jump in here just to say, uh, because it, I must admit, it wasn't until I started reading about Doppelganger that I understood how Naomi Wolf. Naomi Wolf's trajectory, let's say. I mean, I was uh, I was familiar with uh, with the beauty myth. I also did, and we'll, we'll, I'm sure we'll come onto this. I remember that moment where, which is quite a sort of a tipping point moment in your analysis of it, when she was her talking about her book Outrages on the BBC and was corrected live on air about a sort of a, essentially a catastrophic error that completely undermined the the thesis of her book. And yet, I think. For whatever reason, I hadn't been paying attention to Naomi Wolf, and I didn't really know until until reading about your book that, and then reading the book itself, that the journey had been had been quite so had been quite so extreme. Because, in a sense, I suppose she might have the idea I had of her in my mind just somebody who perhaps somebody like you wouldn't be too bothered from a reputational point of view to be to be confused with. Whereas, in fact, the change had been so dramatic. That um, that it could be quite uh, quite damaging for you. Yeah, and and it and it became much more dramatic during COVID. She, mm -hmm. like, you know, I say say in the book that she kind of dabbled in conspiracy um, in the decade previously, mm -hmm. but still did you know some credible work. And um, then, as you say, right before COVID in 2019, there was this debacle with her book Outrages, where she was dropped by her publisher. I think the book was pulped. Um, and she became a spectacle mm -hmm. of public, like public shaming, like what, what mm -hmm. John Ronston called, you know, so you've been publicly shamed. She is one of those people. And I, you know, I, I know, I know how bad it got because I got just a smidge of it, but it right. was, you know, it wasn't just that she got caught live on the BBC making this foundational error and then got dropped by her publishers. It's, it's that, it's the kind of enjoy, the sadistic mm -hmm. enjoyment that, much of kind of liberal and left Twitter took mm -hmm. in that moment mm -hmm. that I think was really profound for her. Um, 
And then, you know, as you say, so I, it, maybe the stakes were lower before mm -hmm. getting confused with her, but there's still something to me interesting in the mm -hmm. idea of, of a doppelganger in the era of personal branding, right? Mm -hmm. In the era when we are told that, you know, our only life raft in these roiling capitalist seas is the perfecting and controlling of the self. And this mm -hmm. is one of the things that I explore in the book is the way we all create doubles of ourselves mm -hmm. in the creation of our social media personas, in the creation of our optimized selves, you know, using all of this technology to monitor the, se the self, to count the steps, to measure the sleep, to, mm -hmm. you know, and then extending that even into the family and the idea of the child as the double of the mm -hmm. parent, the perfecting, the perfected right. sort of mini-me and the performing of, of the perfected family also on these same social media sites. So I think you know, this is what I started to explore in, in in No Logo, in my first book in the 90s, when this idea of the personal brand was first being floated by management consultants who were, who were very clear that personal branding was an alternative to having a job at a right. time when companies were laying off staff en masse and, and we were being offered this thing, be your own brand as a sort of a consolation prize, you know, <laughs> you're not going to have a job or a pension, but guess what? You can all compete with each other. Um, and, you know, in, in the personal branding sweepstakes, which at first didn't make any sense because this was pre-social media. And, you know, if you weren't a celebrity, how are you supposed to project your brand yeah. into the world? But then, of course, we all got little advertising agencies in our back pockets and it actually became possible to do this. So the idea of having a doppelganger, you know, even if you aren't, even if your doppelganger isn't, you know, a misinformation queen, you know, is, is, isn't palling around with Steve Bannon and Tucker Carlson as my mm. doppelganger came to do during COVID, it still, it still messes with your head. The idea that you are at once supposed to um, create the self that is going to be your life raft mm -hmm. at a time when we aren't, you know, getting jobs or, or having any security. And then the idea that there could be another you out there running wild, doing whatever, and other people could think it's you really points to the absurdity of the whole proposition right. that, that we can, <laughs> in fact, uh, survive these seas by perfecting ourselves. Mm. Because if there's somebody else out there uh, who other people think is you, you may as well throw in the towel, yeah. which I found very freeing and is, is is really what allowed me the creative freedom to write a book that is yeah. much more kind of revealing and playful and maybe a little less on brand for me. <laughs> <laughs> it's funny you talk about that thing about No Logo, about personal branding, because I remember very distinctly the experience of reading about that in No Logo. So this is like, what, 23, 24 years ago. And just finding that idea of personal branding at the time, finding it utterly outlandish. And now just thinking back to just how, just how prescient it, you know, these, these people were about the kind of the world was to come. And as you say, they, they didn't have an idea of social media or things like that, but clearly they had tapped into something about the, the direction the the world was going. I mean, they, you know, whether one would be an advocate of it or someone who finds it kind of horrifying, mm -hmm. they clearly understood that this was the way things were turning. I find that really fascinating. Yeah. And, and I mean, they were pointing to the first celebrity brands, like people mm. like Michael Jordan and Oprah. Mm. And, you know, this was a time when 
marketing was shifting from the celebrity spokesperson model, uh-huh. right? Which is what we had before this, um, where of course, you know, companies would hire a famous, beautiful person to be a spokesperson for their brand to this era where the individual celebrity almost usurps the brand that they are mm-hmm. selling for it. And that is what Michael Jordan represented. That's what Oprah represented. Um, so yeah, I think they were, they were prescient in the sense that they, they were seeing the first mm-hmm. people who were, who were actual super brands who contained multitudes of brands within themselves. Um, and, and, and they were seeing that this is where things are going and they were right. Um, and now, I, we have generations who've been growing up inside of it who are trying to figure out what does it mean to, what is it, what does this do to friendship? What mm-hmm. does this do to colleagueship? What does it do to social movements when we can't tell the difference between an honest expression mm-hmm. and a performance, which is why, you know, the ultimate sort of smear is somebody is performative, right? I, right? I don't trust this person. They're mm. just being performative, but of course we're all being performative. <laughs> um, <laughs> It's um in, in the answer you gave to the previous question, it seemed that there sort of that there must have been a moment where you suddenly had the the understanding or the feeling that of the the rich vein of um, analysis that this idea of the the doppelganger opened up to you because as you said it's sort of it's suddenly it seems to be able to be applied to so many different elements of the the life we're living now. So whether that be about our online selves, whether that be with questions of identity, um, whether that be with you talk about in the book about it's not just individuals having sinister doubles, but uh, nations and cultures um, having them too. Uh, was there, was there yeah. sort of in the writing uh, sort of a moment where um, I guess that's <laughs> that sort of revelationary moment where you suddenly saw the sort of the, uh, the, the extent to which this, this metaphor could be useful for understanding, understanding our world. I don't know. I don't th- know if there was just one moment. It was a, a kind of a combination of doing a, a deep dive into representations of the double mm-hmm. in literature and film, and and reality just mm-hmm. kind of serving up these bizarre moments where you know when i first started doing the research i was following one person into what i call the mirror world right. where where wolf is suddenly on steve bannon's show every day and more and more people are believing these wild conspiracy theories um including in the community where i live you know i live in canada um in a yeah, I in a, in a I live in British Columbia, which is sort of our lotus land in a way, mm-hmm. right? Um, I live in a community where there's like a lot of alternative health, and I, you know, sometimes I joke that we have more life coaches than mm-hmm. teachers, you know. <laughs> <laughs> and um, it's a sweet place, but it 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 started to come up more, you know, at my son's school at. Um, you, you know, and my, my husband ran for office actually mm-hmm. for 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 our uh, left party, the NDP, left of center. And m- we started meeting people who were lifelong NDP or Green Party voters. Suddenly, going over to the far right People's mm-hmm. Party, which is like um, an extreme anti-immigrant party, 
And we're like, what is going on? And their one issue they cared about, they seemed to care about was vaccines. Then we had this huge trucker convoy. I don't know if you remember this, where, uh, you know, when I moved back to Canada during the pandemic from the States, it felt like, oh, okay, we've finally reached sanity, you know, Uh because things were really (laughs) wild in Trump's America. And then it was just like the monster is in the house, you know, <laughs> there, there is nowhere safe. And suddenly there were thousands of uh, truckers, yoga teachers, you know, <laughs> Christian fundamentalists, neo-Nazis, people claiming to be victims of Nazis wearing yellow stars all converged on the Capitol in the winter and the so-called trucker convoy. And sh- I don't know if you remember, they yes, shut down yeah, Ottawa. Well. So yeah. that's when I started thinking more about the collective double, right? Mm. And the way in which, like, there was this feeling when we would have these conversations with our neighbors, which was very kind of Stepford Wives, like, mm. or like invasion of the body snatchers, like what's happened to our neighbors, you know? Um, and and so when I would watch films in particular about doubles like Jordan Peele's Us mm. or Get Out or um, Charlie Chaplin's The Great Dictator right. or Denis Villeneuve's enemy, um, you know, it really started to strike me that so many artists have used the figure of the double to, to get at this kind of raw terror at the center of liberal democracies that it can flip, you know, it can flip and, and suddenly your friendly neighbor is the person turning you in or worse, you know, and suddenly that nice kid down the street is marching, you know, um, uh, in a fascist gang. So, I, you know, I think a lot of artists have used the figure of the double to kind of miniaturize mm-hmm. this hyper object of terror, right? Yeah. So it's like, you know, if you think about Chaplin's The Great Dictator, he doubles himself. He is yeah. both the Jewish barber and the Hitler-esque mm. Fuhrer, and he sort of shuttles between the two. One dresses up as the other, but you're very aware that and he's getting at this, you know, this is, this is geared towards an American audience, not a German audience. Mm-hmm. They've already tipped. Yeah. <laughs> he's saying you could tip, mm-hmm. you know, um, don't tip, uh, and, and make, make the right choices in this moment. So, yeah, I, I mean, I guess it was, yeah, it was that, it was a combination of, of, of engaging with the art form mm-hmm. and watching the news. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And I think that's, that's one of the reasons the, the mirror world is such an interesting, uh, and sort of compelling, um analogy if you like because what when, when when you talk about a reflection in the mirror you're not talking about someone who is diametrically opposed to you in fact in the mirror it's somebody who looks very much like you in certain ways and yeah. yet yeah. things are things are flipped so there was slightly off and that and that is that's the shudder of the uncanny mm-hmm. right i mean yeah. this is when when freud wrote about doppelgangers. It was in an essay called The Uncanny. And and he, he defines the uncanny as that which it, is the familiar made strange, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. And and what is stranger and more familiar than, than, than someone who looks enough like you that the world confuses with you mm-hmm. suddenly doing these things that would have been unfathomable. Yeah. Yeah. And this is um, so so because because in a weird kind of way, I guess people who might have been opposed to to what you had been writing over the last 20, 25 years on, let's say, climate change or things like disaster capitalism and the shock doctrine might have leveled the charge at you 
that it's kind that you are kind of conspiracy minded, right? Like sort of, oh yeah, you know this this shock doctrine thing. Look, you know, it looks good on paper, but of course it doesn't really work like that. Or or you know, climate change is just a hoax concocted by whoever. And yet, one of the things that we see in this mirror world are kind of a sort of conspiracies of an of a sort of well, what from perhaps our side of the mirror seem like genuine conspiracies. I, I suppose what I'm getting at is this idea of like, I don't think you would ever have denied that there were conspiracies. Mm-hmm. And yet there's something I don't... Well, more than that, Adam, I mean, I, I, I considered it my business to expose them. Well, quite. <laughs> uh, you know, and I think that if... if um, I think there's a real risk in the age of conspiracy influencers. And I don't call mm-hmm. them conspiracy theorists. I call them conspiracy influencers. I don't call this you know, conspiracy theories, I call it conspiracy culture. Like the uh, world that she, that, that Wolf is now in is a world that just churns out conspiracy after conspiracy mm-hmm. claim, mm-hmm. chasing the news, right? Chasing mm-hmm. clicks, chasing clout. Um, you know, one minute it's about Ukraine, the next minute it's about Israel-Palestine. Um, at, you know, it's about October 7th, there's a false flag. Then it's, it's about Hawaii's mm-hmm. wildfires coming from space lasers. You know, at, it, it's, it's wherever there is heat, there is mm-hmm. conspiracy because this is about the collision of um, this particular way of seeing the world with, with an attention economy that rewards the most outrageous claim mm-hmm. with attention that is monetizable, right? So yes. this is an industry and that is what is different about it from, uh, you know, I, I've, there are always conspiracy claims that surge during vertiginous moments when we're trying to make sense of the world. Mm-hmm. You know, we're talking about those shocks where the world we thought we knew is suddenly interrupted, right? Mm-hmm. And because humans are creatures of narrative, we reach for narrative right. in those moments. And that can be very healthy. Like you can mm-hmm. suddenly start reading history books Um and you can, um, you reach for context, you gather together, you try to make sense of it. We should mm-hmm. do that in those moments. That's actually how we get out of shock. Mm-hmm. But but there are also going to be false claims that surge in those moments. And that's always, I've seen that, I, I, I saw that after Hurricane Katrina, I saw it after 9-11. What is different about COVID and this and the moment that we're in now is is the fact that it is an industry unto itself because mm-hmm. attention is monetizable because data yeah. is monetizable. So that just wasn't true in the, in these previous mm. moments, like, okay, you could sell, you know, like you could make a little bit of money with a film like loose change, which mm-hmm. made these claims about, about, about yeah. the nine 11 attacks, but it wasn't like thousands of podcasts uh-huh. and YouTube channels and rumble channels and, and, uh, you know, this whole infrastructure that now exists because of the attention economy. Yeah. Um, but look, you, you know, what I call it, the mirror world, a lot of what I, what, what, I, what I examine is the way in which by defining ourselves against the people who believe these things, we often become so reactive and so credible, credulous that we that we that we just sort of toe the status quo mm-hmm. line. So, for instance, at the start of the pandemic, there were there was a lot of critique of the fact that the vaccines were being patented at all right. because these were developed with public money. And why was it that rich countries like mine could hoard three and four and five shots, you know, before? Mm-hmm people in large parts of Africa could even get access to their first shots. Um, 
so we were very critical of the vaccine companies. We we're very critical mm -hmm. of Bill Gates and you know the whole this whole the infrastructure uh, you know of intellectual property protections when it comes to life saving medication. But when the right went all in on vaccine conspiracy and and COVID denialism, a lot of the sort of polite liberal society was just saying, "Roll up your sleeve and get your shot." You know, uh -huh. like we stopped actually having that deeper systemic critique. Mm -hmm. um, so. Some conspiracies are real. Right. You know, it, 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 if that wasn't true, investigative journalists would be out of business. Uh -huh. um, you know, I, you know, in the shock doctrine, you know, it starts with the CIA-backed coup in Chile, mm -hmm. overthrowing Salvador Allende and putting Pinochet in power. Um, and what I try to disentangle in the book is the difference between. Um, the kind like what's going on with with something like QAnon, mm -hmm. where the claim is like elites are rounding up children to suck their adrenochrome, like life force, out of them so they can stay young forever, and a conspiracy like that, like mm -hmm. like the like the Allende one, which is basically about U.S. copper, the U.S. copper industry wanting to make sure that they still have access to lucrative copper mines in Chile and not have them nationalized by Allende. A much less sexy conspiracy, yeah. but a conspiracy that fits in, in, uh, in into an understanding of how capitalism works. Right. That capitalism is a system that, you know, is built to maximize profits uh, and growth. And, um, you know, that, that sometimes it takes a conspiracy to protect those mm. interests. And most of the time it happens out in the open. Um, and, you know, this is why, you know, back to the 1800s, anti-Semitism was described as the socialism of fools. Um, that, you know, this is kind of the oldest and most persistent conspiracy theory in the world, that there is a cabal of Jews that are plotting in back rooms uh, to uh, undermine uh, healthy capitalism, healthy feudal interests. Um, and, uh, and if we could just get rid of them, then we mm -hmm. would have, you know, a, a healthy society once again. So conspiracy, conspiracy, like the, what I'm describing as conspiracy culture, I think part of the reason why you have a lot of people come from the new age who, who are sort of left-ish, but mm -hmm. don't actually have a leftist analysis of, of economics or power are very prone to conspiracy culture is because it offers a sort of easy explanation mm -hmm. for inequality, for injustice, for corporate consolidation. And so I think it's a huge danger to respond to that by, by, by suddenly acting as if nobody ever conspires to do anything. Yeah, yeah. Um, because I then, then you're just going to push more people into the arms of these actually very dangerous explanations of the world when in fact mm -hmm. what they need is a systemic analysis. Yeah. You mentioned the um, the kind of monetizability of conspiracy and you know the way that the sort of the data can be employed to make a lot of people very rich. And one thing you don't sort of pronounce upon one way or the other, I think, in the book around certain people, maybe Naomi Wolf being one, is how, I guess, how cynical cynically they are exploiting this thing so there's someone like steve bannon who I'm sure we'll talk about in a moment who it strikes me at least in your analysis of him that he sort of he he kind of seems to know what he's doing like he seems to be someone sort of quite strategic and it's difficult perhaps to imagine that he really believes in all this stuff but he's kind of strategically using it do you get the sense that like or maybe i'm wrong so correct me but do you get the sense that naomi wolf believes in these conspiracies and is and has 
you know, has sort of almost by accident is kind of monetizing them because they are monetizable? Or do you get a sense that it's perhaps a little bit more cynical that she's seen away them as a route to either some sort of financial um, success or perhaps to some sort of acceptance after being rejected by um, her, what she might have considered her tribe? I think there's belief, um, but whether the belief is the beginning or, mm. uh, you know, of the story or whether the belief needs to be there to continue the story right. is unclear to me. And it's uh -huh. very, very hard to untangle. You know, I have this um, equation in the book to try to understand some of these mm -hmm. figures like her, not only her, um, which is, you know, narcissism slash grandiosity plus social media addiction, mm -hmm. plus midlife crisis. So there's often <laughs> like a big fear of losing relevance divided uh -huh. by public shaming. So coming mm -hmm. back to that moment where she sort of loses, you know, not just loses the audience, but also gets really angry, I think. And I think to some degree, rightfully so, at being treated like mm -hmm. a spectacle mm -hmm. um, and, and, and equals <laughs> right-wing meltdown. Um, so I think it's, I think there's a, there's, there's gotta be belief there, whether belief mm -hmm. is the driver is the piece that I think you, I, I would hesitate to say belief is the driver for any uh -huh. of these folks. I think it's a, I think the, if there's a belief there's that is driving it, it's a belief in oneself. Right. Um, mm -hmm. and so okay. when, when the self is rejected, mocked, um, mm -hmm. you know, loses relevance, then you must do everything possible to reassert the self, to, mm. to, to claim that you were right all along, that you are a Cassandra, that you are the only one, the only truth teller. Um, and that's where I see a lot of the energy coming from. Mm -hmm. And in the case of Bannon... So Bannon is a more complicated figure, mm. as you say. You know, I, I mean, I think there's belief there. I think yeah. it's very sin sinister. I, you know, I think, I think Bannon has a passionate political project mm -hmm. to bring the far right to power right. in the US or, and around the world. You know, when he was ejected from Trump's White House, he immediately set about weaving together this network of far right political actors and parties from Bolsonaro to um, to, to Georgia Maloney to Viktor Orban. Um, and, you know, he calls it now, sometimes he calls it inclusive nationalism, um, which is a nod to wanting to get more um like maybe latino men and uh, and black men you know few into the coalition who might mm -hmm. be energized by some of what gets talked about around you know your teachers are turning your kids trans or right. um you know or or, or being anti-immigrant um so but but what he wants is power and he will do anything to get there, to, mm -hmm. you know, in terms of building a, a coalition. Does he love everyone in the coalition? You know, uh, no, I think he's passionate mm -hmm. about power, right? So a figure like Wolf, who is a feminist, uh, you know, still calls herself one, um, uh, Jewish, um, you know, former Democratic Party operative, 
does he really like hmm. her? You know, would he be nice to her once they got to power? I don't know. I think he sees her as very useful mm -hmm. in terms of broadening a coalition. Um, it's always been a weakness that they have had trouble appealing to women. He sees her as a way to, uh, you know, he, 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 at one point he said, he, you're, you're one of my top candidates for woman of the year and all of these moms are listening to you. And uh. so this has always been a weakness for, for, the, for the Trump project is, you know, they can get some men who used to vote Democrat, but they have had trouble peeling away a portion of the Democratic base who are not men. Yes. And, and so I think tapping into kind of the anger of the moms during the COVID era around vaccines and masks and school closures, he understood to be a, a, something quite potent. Mm -hmm. And it seems in a way that the sort of the terrain of the mirror world, if you like, provides kind of opportunities for deploying certain tactics, which perhaps before the, the sort of the, the the expansion of the mirror world would have been um, ineffective or much less effective. And now you, in the book, one thing you give a, a name to is something which I've sort of, I think we've all experienced a lot of, and I, I never really seen articulated in this way. So I found it very useful as an analysis. And the term you give is, I get a, I'm not sure I pronounced it right, pipicking. Would that be the, <laughs> is, that, is that how it would be pronounced? And perhaps you could explain to our listeners, give them a little bit of a kind of a, a primer to, to Pippiking. Sure. Yeah. Um, well, thanks for asking. I, w I, w I always like an opportunity to, to sprinkle a little Yiddish into the conversation. <laughs> um, yeah. So, so, so as, as we discussed, I, I talk in the book about um, different, different doppelganger works of art, novels, um, and uh, you know, I drew from a, a lot of different sources, but the book that I felt most captured the particular texture <laughs> mm -hmm. of what I, what I was experiencing with Wolf was um, Philip Roth's Operation Shylock, mm -hmm. um, which came out in 93, I believe. Um, and it is, a, you know, a true doppelganger novel. All mm -hmm. I say true just because almost all of Philip Roth's novels have a sort of yeah. a doppelganger-esque quality where you're not quite confused, you're not quite sure whether the protagonist is actually Philip Roth. When it came to Operation Shylock, um, all pretenses were dropped right. and the main character is named Philip Roth. <laughs> uh, he has written all of Philip Roth's books and he is being dogged by another fake Philip Roth who is running around Jerusalem trying to engineer a reverse exodus of the Jews out of Israel back to Eastern Europe because he's become convinced that Israel is very bad for the Jews and is going to become, mm -hmm. quote unquote, Jewry's coffin. And uh, Philip Roth, uh, real Philip Roth, who is he real Philip Roth? Uh, narrator Philip Roth is, uh, is is quite distressed by the fact that fake Philip Roth is doing this and in meeting with heads of state who seem to believe that it's the real Philip Roth. And at one point in the book, Roth says that the worst part of it is that he's taken every every part of Philip Roth's writing and re and, and 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 rendered them absurd. Mm -hmm. um, and he describes this as pipicism. Now, pipic is the Yiddish word for belly button. Mm -hmm. um, and 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 in Roth's upbringing, uh, it was a diminutive used to 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 talk to you know silly little kids. They would be called Moisha pipic. Mm -hmm. Moses's belly button. <laughs> um, and so Roth at, at a certain point is kind of wailing at how his doppelganger has 
has pipicked absolutely everything he ever believed and stood mm-hmm. for and rendered it absurd. So I kind of take the phrase in the book, pipicism, um, and run with it to describe the world we're in, a very mm-hmm. pipicked reality. Um, and, and you know, ha- how, how to understand, for instance, not that Steve Bannon not only is building this neo-fascist alliance globally, but complains with great force about the fact that liberals are othering him. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, so like taking a key phrase from the anti-fascist lexicon and, um, and, and appropriating it for themselves. Uh, so yeah, I, f- I found that f- phrase quite useful. Mm. And indeed the, um, the example of Trump sort of taking the term fake news and sort of, yeah, pipicking it to, <laughs> to borrow your expression so that it, it became something that it, could no longer be used as an attack on him and that he could use as an attack on others. And whether I've always wondered whether Trump did that sort of consciously or whether he was just a sort of, he's just such an instinctive, um, yeah, Pipica, if you like, that it yeah, just sort I of think came he's pretty so instinctive. I think he was also being coached by Bannon mm-hmm. at that right. stage. And Bannon is, um, you know, scours the lexicon mm-hmm. um, of the left and just hoovers it up and flips it. And, you know, this is part of what I was, you know, I, I write, I write that the, in the book that, that this comes out of a feeling of speechlessness, this mm-hmm. project of just like, I don't know how to write. I, I have lost faith in the power of, as I said, like a certain type of book, a certain, mm-hmm. t- I, I, I've lost faith in the premise <laughs> that we change minds with facts and arguments. Mm-hmm. Um, because of this sort of pipicking. So part of the project for me was sort of figuring out how to have a lexicon to, uh-huh. to, to understand what's going on with words, with language, with, with speech. And what do we do when all of our words have been appropriated by people who stand for everything we oppose? Like mm-hmm. what, what then, what do we say? Yeah. And I think part of what we, what we, must do in a moment like that is try to reunite words with actions. Because I think mm-hmm. part of what we're dealing with is that we're swimming in a sea of, 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 of words disconnected from reality. And this brings us back to brands and performance and the, and the, and the, and the cries of performativeness, mm-hmm. you know, which is basically saying your words are not connected to your actions. You are performing something that you are not. And mm-hmm. we have this feeling that Nobody is what they seem. It's not just that the right is is pipicking the left. It's that the left is performing something it's not. It's claiming mm-hmm. virtue that it actually doesn't deserve to claim. And we feel this about one another and we feel this about ourselves. And I think that the only way we get out of it is, is by investing in, 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 you know, for me, for social movements that are, you know, really putting their bodies on the line, like that mm-hmm. are, that are, that are finding ways to match words and actions with some kind of integrity. You know, and I look at a figure like Greta Thunberg, who, Mm. um, you know, I quote her, uh, I think quite amazing political intervention a few years ago at the COP, at the, at the UN climate summit in Glasgow, which was really a turning point for her as an activist where she, you know, previously had gone to these gatherings of world leaders Mm -hmm. and, and diplomats and and given these impassioned speeches where she would call them out and 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 sort of plead and sometimes even weep you know about their inability or their unwillingness to act but there was a certain kind of faith in mm. those speeches like the, the, a faith in them like like it, it was an appeal 
And she went to Glasgow and it was like a different post-COVID or COVID era Greta showed up. <laughs> and every time anyone put a mic in front of her, she kept saying, yeah, uh, we're, we're hearing lots of blah, blah, blah. Oh, yeah, they watered down the blah, 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 which is quite an accomplishment, really. You know, um, green economy, blah, 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 build back better, blah, blah, blah. So she was doing something completely different. She was there to make fun of their speech. Mm. She was there yeah. to say, you are going to say lots of good words that will mean nothing. And I'm mm. not going to contribute to those words by speaking to you as if, you are people who might hear these words and act. I'm just going to call, I'm just going to name what is happening here, which mm -hmm. is blah, 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 words unconnected to action. And then the next thing she did was get arrested trying to stop a, you know, coal mining in right. Germany. And she's been doing a lot of things like that since mm -hmm. then. And she has not been going to Davos and some, you know, climate summits and pleading with world leaders. So, you know, I think that that, points to maybe mm -hmm. how we get to a place where words feel a little less useless, you know? Yeah. Um, yeah. I think um, I'd, I'd like to, um, I'm conscious that we don't have a whole lot of time and I'd like to come on to, uh, in a moment to talking about a little bit more about that kind of, in a sense, sort of dismantling perhaps the, uh, both the mirror world and, um, but also this concept of the Shadowlands, which we haven't touched on yet and which I think taps into what I was talking about in the introduction about the sort of the historically rooted analysis of um, the contained in the book, because one thing that I think had one of the most profound effects on me when reading it was this kind of articulation of the kind of almost the kind of collective lie, particularly in the West that we live, that we're raised into, that we live with. And that sort of we can deny that the idea that, you know, our societies are built on whether it's colonialism or slavery, a combination of both. Um, and, you know, we but but we can't we can't escape it. It's 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 present in our lives in different sort of forces and different um, in different ways. And it's having this kind of pernicious effect on us, whether we admit its existence or not. Yeah. And I mean, this is where doppelganger novels for for any anybody familiar with the genre they always end up with the protagonist looking in the mirror at themselves right mm -hmm. i mean you think you're going off to confront your double and then you end up confronting yourself yeah. and um and i think that you know whether whether we're talking about conspiracy culture or the sort of smugness of 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 liberalism of being not them of being not mm -hmm. the bad guys all of us are having trouble reckoning with mm -hmm the weight of what it means to be alive today. Mm -hmm. You know, I think we really are, and this is where, you know, it, this book does engage with the material in, in, in this changes everything. And, mm -hmm. you know, the climate work that is my main sort of continues mm -hmm. to be my main preoccupation. It's what I teach about. I lead a research center, um, about climate justice. And, you know, I don't think any of us are able to hold our complicity mm -hmm. in, the the reality that we are here on the knife edge between life and death that that and and we know we are failing you know the last time we talked it was during the Paris climate summit right. in 2014 and uh or 2015 and 2015, um yeah. you know that was sort of a high point of hope mm -hmm. you know when they negotiated a, a a a you know what is considered like the best the best agreement Mm -hmm. But that agreement did not, it contained the words fossil fuels, yeah. oil, gas, um, you know, 
like what kind of denial does it take to, mm-hmm. to, to, to negotiate a climate agreement and not be able to name, mm-hmm. let alone say we're going to transition off of the main drivers of the climate crisis. Mm-hmm. So, um, so we're all finding ways to look away, you mm-hmm. know, and, 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 and I think conspiracy, like this flight into fantasy that, that Wolf represents to me, just like untethering from reality is a very visible way mm-hmm. of, 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 of just sort of checking out and not looking at where we are at right now. But I think we all do it in various, in, we all find our distractions. We all find our ways of looking away. One useful uh, kind of doppelganger that, that that I found in, in the research was um, by uh, the writer Daisy Hildyard, who talks mm-hmm. about how we uh, the second body. Right. So what she, she makes the argument that we all have two bodies. We have mm-hmm. the body that we are sort of consciously aware of that is you know sitting in this chair talking into this microphone, going to have lunch later, mm-hmm. um, and then there is our second body, which is a real physical being that also interacts with the world mm-hmm. um, that is this, but is much larger and, and, and whose boundaries are harder to define. Mm-hmm. And that is the body that is engaged and entangled with climate change, with oil wars, with occupations, um, because the food that we eat, the clothes that we wear, the energy that we consume is physically entangled in all mm-hmm. of those forces. And that is so hard for us to bear, right? Mm-hmm. That we have to find ways to look away. And that's kind of part of what we're doing with these performances and perfectings of the selves is finding ways to look away from the second body mm-hmm. or the shadow lands or yeah. the selves that we can't bear to see. And and I think the reason we can't bear to see them is they're much too hard to look at alone. Right. Yeah. Right. And, and, and the, and if we think about how do we unite words with action and really do something about this, that is something we can only do together. That is something mm. that is something we can only bear to confront as part of bodies of other bodies, mm. uh, you know, so social movements, uh, um, unions, uh, um, political projects, then we might be able to look at it. But so long as we're imagining that our primary site of impact is just the individual self, we will necessarily have to look away because that's too mm. much. That's too much for, for just a self to be able to look at. Yeah, a, yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, now, we're recording this on the 20th of November, 2023. And of course, the book came out uh, a few months ago. Um, but we're recording it in the historical context of everybody looking at what's happening in Palestine and in Israel with complete horror. And at least for my part, somebody who certainly feels he doesn't know enough about that situation as he should and is trying to kind of catch up and understand what brought the current catastrophe about. And that you dedicate quite a lot of time towards the end of the book to discussing um, Israel and Palestine. Um, And I think, at least as a reader, for me, it was in some way quite clarifying to read something that had been written before these six or so weeks since um, October 7th, and to sort of see the situation grappled with in a, I suppose, it's kind of as clear-headed way as possible. Um, One thing... I found fascinating about the, um, the 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 analysis that you give is this idea, which 
since in the last few weeks, I think people have found it very hard from both sides to, to, to talk about is that someone can be both the victim and the victimizer at the same time. And you say that they can be both traumatized and traumatizer. Um, I'm curious to know, it, from your perspective as someone who, who wrote these paragraphs and then has seen what has happened, is, has it caused you in any way to to change your understanding of the situation, to reassess anything that you have written, or is there sort of, sort of as it is perhaps consolidated the the analysis that you you put forward in the book? Well, I'm, I'm always I'm always learning, and you know I've been I haven't been publishing a lot in this period. Mm-hmm. Um, I've been writing a lot. Um, Mm -hmm. So I guess I'm still in a stage where I'm, I'm trying not to just be reactive. I think there's so much reactivity. I'm, I'm, I'm signing letters. I'm, you know, I'm part of a Jewish peace organization, Jewish Voice for Peace, which has been organizing a lot of demonstrations calling for a ceasefire. I've been on their board for 15 years. Mm -hmm. So I've just been kind of really happy to focus on that kind of collective work um, Mm. as opposed to just like, I need to get out my hot take right Right. away. Um, So yeah. And, and and feeling grateful that the book has, you know, the longest chapter in the book is about Israel, Palestine. It ends in Gaza. I have have been to Gaza as a, as a reporter. um, So I can absolutely picture the landscape. Um, and, you know, I know that the book goes in some unexpected places mm-hmm. and the most unexpected place it goes is Gaza. Right. Um, and it's funny because, you know, of all the parts of the book where, which I ha- where we had the most debate was this part mm-hmm. of the book. Including, you know, I had a couple of readers who thought don't, that I shouldn't have it in the book at all because mm-hmm. it was... Um, you know, was it really about doubles and was it really about doppelgangers and, and, uh, you know, it didn't have very much to do with Wolf at all. Um, and Wolf is a thread in the book. Mm-hmm. She's, the book's not about her, but I, you know, I, and in having to defend why it was in the book, you know, it became clear to me, it's the most important part of the book, <laughs> you know? So I felt really, um, I was glad that, that it was in there, um, glad that it that it is unexpected and that it can speak for itself you know mm-hmm. uh, and it means that I, it, it's part of why I don't feel like I need to have like hot takes out there right. because the book is there and um and it's it's been interesting like people who because it's it's written when, like everything in the book is written from the inside it isn't mm-hmm. like a finger wagging from the outside I'm right you're wrong it er, I'm always implicating myself in mm-hmm. the complexity. And I think because of that, people are able to hear the critiques of Zionism um, in a way that they wouldn't be able to hear it in an op-ed that mm-hmm. felt like an attack mm-hmm. on a worldview. Right. Um, so, yeah, I'm, I'm glad it's out there. And, yeah, I mean, I'm always changing what I think and yeah. adapting. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so we'll see <laughs> what the next thing is. Um just to conclude, um, you touched on it a little bit earlier about this idea of sort of what we can do to dismantle 
the Shadowlands, you know, if such a thing is is possible. Um, one thing that I picked up a few moments in the book. So yeah, I, I sense a little bit of a, perhaps a frustration with the sort of the fragmenting on the left, um, which perhaps I don't know if it's necessarily a a generational thing, but we're certainly with something which seems to have come about in the last few years that they're sort of like the questions of uh, identity, which have, which you clearly think are very important, and yet which also s- seem to perhaps be stimming potential resistance to to the actions of the right. Yeah, I you know I think that any serious study of the rise of fascism. Um, would have to reckon with the fact that every story of the, the, the triumph of a fascist project on the right is also a story of fragmentation and mm-hmm. dissolution um, on the anti-fascist left. Mm-hmm. And so I do, I do believe that this is a moment when we have to be able to bear difference. We mm-hmm. have to be able to, um, to, 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 you know, we don't have to agree with every single part of each other's worldview and, you know, in order to understand that we have common interests. And so, yeah, you know, I'm not, I am not somebody who throws identity politics Mm. under the bus, but I do, uh, I do have big concerns about the way that identity gets weaponized to, uh, to sort of tear us apart. And, you know, the engage, my engagement with my own Judaism and and the way in which trauma can become a like a, a wall between different groups mm-hmm. um, I feel is a bit of a warning yeah uh, I, I, and so so that's part of why that chapter is there in the book mm-hmm. yeah. you um towards the end of the book so you do set up that kind of challenge of how do we how do we face up to yeah. uh, to our second bodies, essentially, that you described in the Daisy Hilliard term. Um, and it's sort of, I found it both uh, quite an inspiring uh, ending to the book, but also something which is sort of, I guess, quite bracing in a way. It's sort of, it, it's, it's certainly not going to be, you don't get a sense it's going to be easy to turn around, um, turn around the tanker. But you do also uh, appeal to... Um, to the writing of John Berger, actually, which yeah. is always, you know, whenever, whenever I find John Berger in a piece of writing, like he was somebody who was very dear to the bookshop and very, very dear to me personally, who yeah. um, seemed in some way to, um, to almost to sort of to identify the key in your previous writing to potentially the, the, the way we might dismantle or begin dismantling these, these shadowlands. Yeah, and he was also very dear to me. Um, and yeah, so so I quote John a couple times in the book, uh, and, and at the end of the book, it's it's an essay, a post sixty eight, where he's talking about the power of the mass demonstration being not only that you're demonstrating when you have masses of people coming together. Um, that you are powerful mm-hmm. to to those in power. You're saying, "Look at us. There's mm-hmm. lots of us." Um, you're also demonstrating something to one another, and that is that you are 
not just individuals. You're part of something larger, which is a class. Mm -hmm. And that that changes the people who are participating in, in the demonstration. And, uh, and, and, and I think that that's something very important to remember about why we, why it's worth coming together, mm -hmm. uh, you know, which is not about annihilating the ego. It's not about saying that there is no individual in this there, whether, you know, our, our individual selves or our collective identities as part of, you know, different identity groups. But when we come together, we are changed by one another. Mm. And, um, and so what doesn't feel possible, you know, about, uh, about the task of systemic change in a moment, mm. As, which demands as much systemic change as our own. We just don't know how we'll be changed if we do overcome these barriers and come together. Like all kinds of horizons open up that we can't predict. Hmm. That seems like a perfect place on which to leave it. Naomi, you've been so generous with your time today. Thank you so much for joining us. Doppelganger is, of course, available uh, from Shakespeare and Company, from our uh, bricks and mortar store from our online store as well or from your local independent bookstore uh, whichever side of the Atlantic you're on um, all that remains for you to say is Naomi Klein it's been such a pleasure to have you with us today thank you so much Adam it was a real pleasure and I look forward to hanging out in person in your beautiful bookshop again thank you for listening to the Shakespeare and Company podcast if you've enjoyed this conversation, it would be great if you could help us spread the word by reviewing or rating us in your favourite app or just by sending the link to your friends. And don't forget, if you'd like even more from Shakespeare and Company, you can subscribe now through Apple Podcasts or Patreon for just €3 Euro a month. Links to both are available in the show notes to this episode. Production of this podcast is all done in-house here at Shakespeare and Company Paris. All music is by Alex Fryman, whose album Play It Gentle is available to buy or stream wherever you listen. We'll be back soon. Until then, take care and thanks again for listening.